Genesis chapter 6. I did skip chapter 5 because it is a lot of genealogies. One worth noting in there is Enoch, though. He walked with God and, and then he was no more, is kind of what is said about Enoch. And if you look at that, you see Enoch was pretty amazing God because he was righteous and blameless in a sense that he was in fellowship with God, uh, whether he sinned or not. Uh, he did sin. There's no question about that because we're all born with that sin nature. But as we walk forward, we see that God is walking in step with Enoch. And then he, I've always heard that story is they go out for a walk and they go a little bit longer. And then um, Enoch would invite him back, God back to his house. And uh, God would say thanks. And he'd come back and have fellowship with him. And then um, they walk a little farther and a little farther. And they do that every time. And pretty soon one day, God says, well, we're a little closer to my house. Why don't you come to my house today? And they, that was the last time they walked on the earth. So I always thought, yeah, I could see that happening. So as we get into Genesis chapter 6, you're going to see that our theme is that God knows the cost of man's corruption. Praise God that he has paid the price for our sins by sacrificing son on the cross not only did he sacrifice his son, but his son rose again on the third day. And that gives us hope for the future and what we are hoping for. And so I looked at Genesis chapter 1 and I clumped it together, or Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, and I clumped it together with the next, oh, through verse 8. And I got so much on 1 and 2 that I had to just give it its own little section. Because if you look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, it reads like this, Then the people began to multiply on the earth, and the daughters were born to them. And then verse 2, Then the sons of God saw the beautiful women, and they took any they wanted as their wives. Now, that's very nice of the New Living Translation to put it that way. Um, but I don't really think that's kind of what it means. This kind of scenes they says, you know, you can make a case for polygamy on this. You can make a case for this. But that's not what it means to take them as their wives. It means uh, the men went out and raped the women. Is what I'm pretty sure that this passage means. And wickedness has corrupted man to the point where they do as they want to do. And it seems like anytime we get a new discovery, something that is new and wonderful, we find a way to ruin it. Um, we're going to see pretty soon the Tower of Babel or Babel. What, what do we get new there? We get the brick, right? And we take the brick and we try to, what? Go to heaven. We're going to build a tower to heaven. We're going to be just like God by getting into heaven. We're going to break that, that plane up there that they always thought was solid. And we're going to just be right with God. We're just going to build a stairway to heaven. And that is not how it goes. You can't do it under human effort, can you? We have to do it under the effort of the Lord has set out in his atonement, in this case. And we know through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. So what are some of the other things across time that we have distorted? I was thinking about... Uh, the industrial age, the factory, right? When we get into the factories, you start looking at the history of the factory. You see um, some of the greed that, that went in with that, with the low wages, the poor safety conditions, and things that we had to fight to get some of those changed around because some of the things that would happen in the factory were very violent and very degrading, um, even to women, as well. But I'm just glad we don't have any technology today that we abuse. I haven't even got to the punchline yet, guys. No. Right? We do. Right? We abuse the technology all the time. It started with TV. It started with videos. Um, it's moved to our computers. It's moved to our hands, to our phones. And we have technology that we can abuse all the time whenever we want. And that is not healthy. It is not something that's conducive to our walk with Christ. And if you look at those things, even this year, um, if you look at uh, what the, the Senate did a, did a probe into, and there was a leak from, 
the major social medias, and we see that they have written their algorithm in a way to make it more addicting. Well, duh. I mean, to me, that's kind of obvious, but do you remember what, um, what they did back to television? They, they were putting out ads that were like, um, they would go along and they'd be, they were, there was an undercurrent under of a theme. So if they were selling chicken through the undercurrent, they would say, eat more chicken, eat more chicken, you're hungry for chicken. And you couldn't hear that, but it was there, and they saw the prices of chicken go up, by, or the, the desire for chicken to go up like 15% because they had put that undercurrent in the message and things. And so a lot of times when we get this new technology, we use it to distort what was good to something that is evil. Okay, we, use, we could use our phone for something very good. We can use it for communication. We can use it to stay connected. We can use it to look up information when we don't. We can use it as our second brain a lot of times, right? But we can also use it for something that's very destructive and wicked. And if we question if we need we question if we need definitions and relationships when it comes to right and wrong. When we look at um, Genesis chapter one, we look at Genesis chapter two, we see God has created marriage. He's created it with male and female. And that today we want to question those definitions. Uh, we can live how we want. I'm allowed to do anything I want to do. Or another good one is let them tell you what's wrong. Well, I'm here to tell you today, if you're going to live through life with this mentality, you're going to wind up hurt. And you will hurt other people along the way. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. It basically says those three that I came up with. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. Even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything or let anything be my master. Okay? You say, food was made for the stomach and stomach was for food. This is true, but though someday God will do away with both of them. But you cannot say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord. The Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us up from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. So we take that saying, food was made for the stomach and stomach for food. That was one of the sayings back that the Corinthians used to say, so they could eat as much as they wanted. Okay? So be like, oh, it was made for me. Food was made for the stomach and stomach for food, so I'll just be a glutton. Right? And that's not right. Another way that we can um, walk into gluttony is we could say the body is made for sex and sex for the body. Our bodies are made for the Lord. He says you cannot do that. We are made in his image. Do not distort the truth that we find in Genesis chapter 2, the first marriage that we have in the Bible, like they're doing in Genesis chapter 6. This would be a rape culture. This is a culture that we are not far away from in our, in our society. I mean, if you look at, uh, you go to a college town and, and you ask them if there's such a thing as a rape drug, they know absolutely there, that there is. And it's basically putting a tranquilizer in their drink so you can have your way with that person because they will become much more fluent. That's also... I have people in my life that that's happened to. And so as you go through and you look at these things, you have to be careful on how you go. Well, how do you avoid get something put in your drink? Well, one, you don't drink anything at all. Two, you don't go to the club. Hey, hey, that just solved that problem, right? But we want, we allow our conscience to say, well, it's okay if I just go to to this one, or if I'm with this person, I'm, I'm safe. And that you might be, and you might be for a time, but pretty soon you're like, well, I've done this enough on my own. 
that I can go and do this on my own. That, you know, I, I was with uh, Todd. I don't know who Todd is, but he's my, my, my bar hopping friend, apparently. And now I, I'm okay with Todd, and I've, I've done the thing with Todd, but now I can go out and do it by myself. I can do it all by myself. You hear that two-year-old come out again, right? Anytime that two-year-old comes into your head, you got to be careful because what you've done with your conscience is say, well, I can get close to the fire. I can get even closer to the fire. I can hold my foot over the fire. Woo, singed all the fuzz off my sock there. I could probably step in the fire. I'm going to step in the fire. I'm, I'm walking in the fire. It doesn't even hurt my feet anymore. I can't even feel my feet because I've walked in the fire. That's how tough I am. Well, what does that sound like? Sounds like somebody's borderline on addiction right there, right? You get drunk after one beer? It takes me 12. It's not something to be proud of necessarily, is it? Because... It's had master over you. That's what it said before in the passage. It has master over you. So when it comes down to sexual temptation and things like that, you may, you got to think of sexual temptation like the cheese and you are the mouse. Okay? Jesse remembers this from a spring retreat or two ago. We were up at Bureau Township. Were you at that one? Maybe you weren't there. Amy's not here, so I couldn't point to her. So This might have been the one you were at, though. Yes. Uh, I got this one from Bill Allison. It says, you go up and you see the, the mouse trap. You don't see the trap. You see the cheese. You see the cheese on the trap, right? And you're distracted by the cheese, and you pretty soon you're up there, and you're sniffing the cheese. And you're like, I'm wondering, whoo, that cheese, it, it smells good. So you get a little closer, and maybe you take a little nibble on that cheese. Well, I'm, I'm fine. I d- it didn't, didn't trigger the trap, so I'm okay. I can smell the cheese. I can caress the cheese. But then, wham! We're a dead mouse, aren't we? We've got to be careful that we don't go and, and play with the cheese, but we see the cheese and we run the other way. That's what Joseph did. That's what uh, we have here in what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, continue on to 18 to 20. It says, run from sexual sin. No other sin as clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your body. Don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you at a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Wow. We were bought at a high price. What was the cost for us? How much did it cost? Say it out loud. It was Jesus, right? Jesus died for your sins and my sins, the sins of the world. It's kind of unfathomable. But you might say, well, pastor, my mind is consumed with thinking about the cheese. Whether it's the next drink, whether it's the next uh, sexual thing that you might be able to do or something like that. All I can think about is my sin. All I can think about is this craving. Well, here are four things that you can do to help bring self-control into this situation. One is set boundaries. You need to set boundaries. Um, uh, When it comes to sexual temptation, sometimes it's after it gets dark, phone goes off. You don't need your phone on at night. You don't need it. Maybe it's uh, phone doesn't go in the bedroom with you. May, another good one is when your spouse goes to bed, you go to bed. So when your spouse goes to bed, you go to bed because then you're not sitting out on the couch board doing nothing and nothing good happens after dark. Right? Nothing good happens after dark. I've heard that. That's not my, it's not scripture, but I've heard that one before and I think it's good. Um, I think I heard it, uh, nothing good happens after 2 a.m. Number two is confess. Get it off your chest. When you deal with the shame in your life, it is 
overwhelming and it is very impactful in in your life and if you say to yourself i'm the only one that struggles with this i what would other people think if they knew if they knew oh they would treat me different they would do this they would do that all those are assumptions aren't they i remember when my wife started selling mary kay and one of the things they encouraged them to do is you don't make assumptions First, you ask them, do you have a minute to talk? Because if they don't have a minute, they'll tell you. I'm like, that's good. That's something I use um, today on my phone conversations. Do you have a minute to talk? Yeah, I do. Okay. And then you can go. And if, Don't assume you're, you're going to lose the sale in a sense. And so you, you have a product that you believe in. You sh- need to stand behind it. Well, I have a saver that I believe in. I need to stand behind him. Right? Mary Kay's makeup. That's why you don't know about it. I know. So when you confess, don't assume that the person across the way from you is going to condemn you. That's what I always thought. I was like, it's so, I was so shameful. I remember the first time I confessed to somebody. He was struggling with the same thing, and he was trying to confess to me that night, and I was trying to confess to him, and we were going to work together, which we did. We stayed up all night. Uh, we were playing, uh, it wasn't Bakugans, but it was, what are those battle tops? Do you know those, William? Beyblades. Never heard them before. Never seen them before. That night, we played it all night long, talking, and we were just these two tops going after each other, and um, we confessed to each other, and that's when, that was one of the very first times that um, I was able to get a grip on my sexual temptation and um, really go after and have victory in it. So in that case, I think men need to talk to men, and I think women need to talk to women. Um, If you need to talk to me, women, about that, then I'm going to pull somebody in with us on that. So just know that. Um, another, another thing that is really good, when you're walking into that temptation, when it's about ready to happen, if you say this out loud, that you renounce that temptation in the name of Jesus Christ, I tell you what, there's power in the name of Jesus. And You'd be like, well, I'm not going to do that because I'll feel a lot more shame when I'm going to do it anyway. Well, do it anyway. Trust me. Because if you are serious about working through that temptation, um, about the third or fourth time, you'll have victory over it. Okay? And that's something that I've learned on a personal way. Because if you're not willing to use the power of the name of Jesus, how in the world are you fighting any of your battles? On your own strength? You're not going to win. But if I, in the name of Jesus, there will be victory. Right? And then finally, it's invest in good Christian music. I've maybe said this before, but I was in the sixth grade. My teacher said that every three seconds, the only thing you're thinking about is sex um, for guys. And I was like, that's not true. And I'm like, but it is somewhat true. And so um, one of the ways that I found victory in that, in my thought process, was Christian music. I discovered that if I was listening to good Christian music, then I was able to have victory over my sexual thought process. I was able to treat um, girls as people and not objects, which is not easy for a junior high, high school boy to do these days because we are trained to treat them as objects, right? I remember um, there, I don't know, there, your whole commercial base is based on sex, I would say. She's attractive. I want to be like her. She's attractive. You want to have her to be yours, right? You see this in... Um, Matt Chandler was talking about this last Sunday. He says, uh, 
you start a new television program, the pilot or the next episode is going to have sex or violence in it uh, to the max to draw you into it, to draw our culture into it. That's, that's how they do. So he says you better be ready with your fast-forward button or you better be able to shut it off uh, knowing it's going into that. So that's how it works. So there's nothing better for me than a Christian song stuck in my head on repeat. That's something that I learned from my father. He would get uh, solid rock and it would know, just be two phrases, and he'd sing it all day long. Um, so we would get um, WCIC on the, on the radio. We would get, it was the one out of the Quad Cities back in the day. It was 93.5, but it's no longer that. Now it's uh, K-Love. Um, what's that? Yeah, Moody. We listen to Moody a lot. Um, and then also here locally at 107.9 is praise and worship music. Did you guys know that? It's like, what? Um, 88.5 is another good one. And WB. Yeah, 91.5. And then um, you can get on Christian playlists on Spotify and things like that. Um, sometimes you got to listen to commercials. But all those things are good and Remember, when you bring good things into your head, um, good things are going to come out of your mouth as well. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you fill your heart with good things, you'll have good things coming out. That's one indicator as well. This is a little bit of a side note. But when you want to, if you ever ask yourself, how come I don't share my faith? How come I don't? Share. How come I'm more, not more active or more vocal in my faith to share it? I would say your input into your life is pretty low. Because if you have a high input into your heart through your mind, it will come out of your mouth regardless. You won't really care what other people think. Because it's just there. It just comes out. Because you're in step with the Spirit. So keep that in mind. All right, let's continue on. Genesis chapter 6, 3 through 8. The Lord said, My spirit will not put up with these humans so, for so, such a long time, for they are only mortal flesh. In the future, their normal lifespan will be no more than 120 years. In those days, and for some time later, giant Nephilites lived on the earth, for, whatever, for whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to the children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was constantly and totally evil. This is where they've come from, from eating that bite on the apple. They made one choice of sin. Now they always choose sin. Let's continue on, verse 6. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. And the Lord said, I will wipe this human race I have created from the face of the earth. Yes, I will destroy every living thing, all the people, the large animals, the small animals that scurry along the ground, and even the birds of the sky. I am sorry I ever made them. But Noah found favor with the Lord. Now, if you've ever studied this passage with Mr. Craig Mitzelfeld, every time you come along the word scurry, you have to go scurry, scurry, or scurry, scurry, either way. So that's what goes through my head every time I see the word scurry, every time. Um, so thank you, Craig. It's a Craigism. All right. So we know that man is wicked. Now we know that man is also corrupted. How are they corrupted? Well, let's get into that a little bit. This brings us to the Nephilites. The Nephilites means fallen ones. There's much discussion on what it means of fallen ones. If you really look up what Nephilites are, nobody really knows what Nephilites are. Okay? There is, there's only interpretations of what it may mean, and there's not a clear Meaning, there's kind of three different lines that go out of this, okay? So some say there are fallen men from the line of Cain, and the sons of God are from Seth. 
I don't really feel like this is where the text goes, however, because I think that all men are, are fallen, Seth or uh, Cain, and they all are wicked. And they are all destroyed except for Noah. Some say they are wicked leadership. And this is a maybe. This is where um, Baruch uh, Corman goes on that. But that's not where I go. That's not, he says there's an angel th- theory out there. Well, that's where I go. I really, I think if you look at the text, I think it's there. And I think that's one reason why God had to create the flood is because Satan was like, if I can't beat them through woman, because remember, who's the promise going to come through? Who's salvation going to come through? It's going to come through the woman. So if I can corrupt the woman's bloodline and make sure it's always sinful, God can't come into woman. And therefore, I've defeated God before he can even be born with his Savior. I got him. Right? Um, So instead of going straight to the source like he did with Cain and corrupting him like that, all he has to do is go to the women and corrupt their bloodlines and we've won. So I think, I think that's kind of where it goes, okay? God saw demons having sex with the daughters of Adam, and they were creating heroes of old, and this could very well be the case. Mankind always likes to chase its heroes. Unfortunately, we're suckers to follow our heroes even to death, and in this case, to finding more new ways to sin. And I think the key verse here is in Genesis 6, 5, says, The Lord observed the extent of the human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was constantly and totally evil to the point we're talking down to one family is still pure. They have a pure bloodline, and they have a pure heart. And what do we know of God when it comes to sin? We know that God is holy. He is separate from sin. And this grieved the Lord that man chose to go this path of evil. And the path that started in the garden, and by choosing the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, man never looked back from doing evil. Therefore, God numbers their days in two ways. You see the year 120 says man is no longer going to live more than 120 years. I think that's true today. We don't see too many people. I think the oldest man right now alive is 113 years old. He is down in South America. Okay, he's a farmer down in South America. How do I know that? The world and everything in it. Let me know. It's a podcast I listen to for news. Um. And I also think you can make a good case that in 120 years, God's going to send the flood. Okay, So at the time he told him to do this or, or numbered the years, would have been 20 years before the boat was um, created. Now, I don't have that concrete. It doesn't say that, but that's what scholars do some assumptions on. That's a maybe. That, that could very well be. The problem with saying that's the only way it could be is that people have hope that they could live to be a thousand years or whatever again. So that's why I put it as maybe. If you put the stipulation at that they're both true, I could say yes. Therefore, mankind would have to get right with God quicker before he dies. When it comes down to it, God's going to deal with them in 120 years, the ones that are on the earth. And after that, they have about 120 years to live. That, with the exception of a few, right? There's a few that live to be to live longer. Noah actually lives longer than Adam did. So, but they have to get right with God. When, when we as mankind have to deal with our mortality, we're more willing to do deal with our morality as well. So when we see our mortality, there's a chance for us to die that we're willing to work on our morality and get right with the Lord. You see this a lot in our culture today. They say, I am my own God. I am my own God. Look at me. I can do what I want. Do as thou wilt. I can do this. Body for food, food for the body. 
I can do whatever I want. Yes, everything's permissible. You have terminal cancer. You have six, six months to get right with what your house are in order, and then you're done. Oh, well, I'm not my own God. I'm going to die. Then people start thinking about God, right? It's sad that they wait that long to get there. But people, when they have to deal with their mortality, they're willing to deal with their morality as well. We saw this with COVID. Saw many kids come to church because they wanted to know, how do I get to heaven when I die? They were scared that they were going to die, so I want to know how to get to the right place if I die. So, with all this, we've come to two conclusions, that man engages in wickedness beyond the hope of repair. Man is wicked. Man is corrupt. And two, the Nephilites have corrupted the bloodlines of man. Therefore, God has to start over. He has to grow a new crop. And how do you start a crop in the spring? You plant seeds, don't you? You ever plant your garden? Sometimes you do it with transplants, but that's, that's kind of like what we are as Gentiles. We're transplanted in. Um, but as a new crop, God plants new seed. And we see the seed in verse 8. But Noah found favor with the Lord, a.k.a. God's seed. So we see this. We see that God is seeing all the wickedness that is happening, but he also sees this, this one person. Does God notice just the one? Absolutely he does. Does he understand and he, does he acknowledge our actions as Christians? Absolutely. So God is watching how we decide to live, and it's important to honor God with our lives because the cost of what he has paid for us. Right? God knows the cost of man's corruption. Praise God that he paid the price of our sins by sacrificing his son on the cross. Let's continue on to verse 9, and this is where it gets interesting. This is something that I've, I learned this week, and I was just like, whoa, you guys got to see this. So get ready for that moment. Uh, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on the earth at the time, and he walked in a close relationship with God. Now, I'm going to pause there for a second because it says the only blameless person living on the earth at this time is the same verbiage that is used for Enoch, the God that walked with God and was no more, that he had earned favor with the Lord in a sense, uh, because of his obedience through his faith with Lord Jesus Christ. That's the same kind of faith that we have here in Noah. Okay? He had the ability to probably walk and be with God no more. Okay? They're written very, very similar. Okay? Noah was the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now God saw that the earth had become corrupt and was filled with violence, and God observed all this corruption in the world for everyone on the earth earth was corrupt. So Noah said, so God said to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures for there. They have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them out all along with, along with all the earth, build a large, and I'm going to say ark from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar inside and out, and then construct decks and stalls through its interior and in i'll say in a little bit the hebrew it's it's construct nests in there okay and that's significant as well and make the boat and i changed this to the hebrew 300 cubits long by 50 cubits wide by 30 30 cubits high and leave a one cubit opening below the roof all the way around the boat put the door on the side and build three decks inside the boat and the lower, the middle, the upper. Look, I am about to cover the earth with a flood that will destroy every living thing that breathes. Everything on the earth will die and I will confirm my covenant with you. So enter the boat and you and your wife and your sons and their wives bring a pair of every kind of animal, male and female, into the boat and you will keep them alive during the flood. Pairs of every kind of bird Every kind of animal and every kind of small animal that scurries along the ground, scurry, scurry, um, with 
will continue, will come to you and be kept alive. And be sure to take on board enough food for your family and for all your animals. So Noah did everything exactly as the Lord had commanded him. Another good verse there. Make sure you get enough food for them all. This is gonna, you got to build a boat. You got to gather animals. It's going to take you about 100 years to do this, Noah. When he started, he was 500 years old. When he got into the, into the ark, he was 600 years old. What do you want to do for your 600th birthday? Or go for a boat ride. Now, when we read this as a Western audience, my first instinct is, how much is a cubit? Because I want to know, yeah, it's spanning your arm, right? It's about 18 inches, okay? Foot and a half. But I want to know, as a Westerner, I want to know, how big is this boat? I want to know how big it is, right? And so I've actually went out to, was it Ohio? Where's that at? Kentucky. Kentucky. We went out to the ark in Kentucky. And that is a sight to see. It's something that everybody should go and see. Um, uh, the Gillums were there not too long after us, right? You guys have been there? Um, it is, it is an, an amazing thing. I got friends right that were visiting it this week. And it is the size, it's bigger than the, a barge. And it's, it's huge on the inside. It's amazing. They constructed it just like Noah would have done out of wood. They got it up on stilts out in the middle of this kind of like a mountainside. <laughs> so it's kind of funny that it's, it's out of place a little bit, but it's amazing. Um, but that's not the point in Hebrew writing. We don't want to, we don't need the statistics, okay? I think in the New Living Translation, it gives you the statistics. Because numbers in Hebrew writing, they have meaning. And I am always a little cautious as your pastor to say, well, these numbers mean these things unless it is very obvious, which it is in this passage, okay? So what number keeps showing up in this passage? The number three. A little bit number five, but the number three comes up most. We have three sons. We have 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, which is half a ten in the Hebrew. That means imperfect, haven't arrived yet, okay? 30 cubits high, one cubit opening all the way around. We'll talk about that. And then three decks, lots of numbers. Let's check out the number three. What do we have for the number three? Okay, well, I looked up uh, the Hebrew this because um, Baruch will talk about these numbers sometimes and things. So I looked this up, and this is something that I had, okay, um, that kind of correlates with how he thinks as well. So it helps. The third day of creation, what do we have? We have seeds. We have trees and fruit. We also have revelation that comes on the third day. Resurrection comes on the third day. Uh, gathering of balance, equilibrium, pattern, counsel, witness, and strength all comes in three. Uh, you think a cord bound together in three. We also have new life, sprouting, resurrection, as I said, fruitfulness, words of life, counsel, unity, uh, the giving of the Torah and the spirit, the foundation of the temple, the house are all signified by the number three. Three brings harmony and unity to opposites like ones and twos. Uh, that's something I haven't looked into, but that's was on the list. And that's something I will look for in the future for the patterns. That three brings harmony. I thought that was interesting and something worth noting. Verse 13, God says to Noah, I have decided to destroy all living creatures for they have filled the earth with violence. Yes, I will wipe them all out along the earth. So follow me for a second. What would happen if you decided on June 1st to plant your garden? What's going to be out there, Doris? What are you going to have a lot of out in your beds? You're going to have lots of weeds, aren't you? Right? And this is the same with the hearts of men. So you've got to till the soil to get rid of the weeds. So God's tillage is a flood. 
He's getting rid of the weeds so he can plant his seed. Okay? The same way with the hearts of men, they're waiting, waiting till, to get it right with God. However, they've waited too long and they're corrupted beyond repair. When you're thinking evil thoughts all the time, there's no more hope for you. You're done in the eyes of the Lord. We see this uh, with um, the Pharaoh. He's, God hardened his heart. Well, it's, it's his, he was so evil all the time, he couldn't get the concept of what was right. His conscience was seared so much that he had let go and walked on. We see this all the time in our young people that leave the church because they're sucked into these things instead of the word of God, right? And we just pray him back because we know greater is he who lives in us than he that lives in the world, amen? Praise God for that. So God is going to till the garden and plant a seed. Look at verse 14. It says, Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar and then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Now let me talk to you about verse 14. Let's look at it in the King James Version, okay? King James Version says, Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Nest, which is the Hebrew, shall, shall thou make in the ark and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Okay, so we got a couple of words in there that don't necessarily make sense, but make sense, okay? Let's look at some of these things. So what do we see in this passage? The first one, it doesn't say boat, it says ark. What's the difference between a boat and an ark? A boat has power. A boat has a rudder. An ark doesn't have either one of those things. So whose hand is controlling that ark when they're out on the, and tossed about on the sea? Yeah, Jesus or God, absolutely. God is in charge. Their faith is 100% in God. Build a boat and then let me control it. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, all right. He's seen what it's done in the past. He's seen how he's protected in the past. He will allow him to protect him in the future. Guess what? That's called faith. Go where I send you, Abraham. Build a boat. Just let it float around. Build an ark. I'll control where it's going to land. All right. That's faith. Nest in Hebrew. Okay? I can't remember what it says in the King James. I took it out of there in mine. But um, if you look at the letter next to it, it'll say, if you go down to the King James Version, it says nest in the bottom of it. And that is the proper word because this is a place where we find rest. This is where we find peace. This is where we have protection. It's God spreading his wings around us to make sure that we're safe. And this is how God responds to faith. His protection. I will protect you. I will watch over you. I will take care of you. And then this is the one. This is the one here. Is the pitch. Pitch and pitch. It says, you shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Because there wasn't a good English word to translate it to. To cover. To cover or to pitch in the Hebrew is kofar. Okay? Now follow this line. This is really, this is like, I was like, whoa, this is so cool. I got to share this. The same kofar in the Hebrew is the same word that we found earlier that means to cover up or to atone. And if you look at Moses' writings through uh, Deuteronomy, 90% of the time, over 90% of the time, it's used as atonement. There was two other times it's used as reconcile, which is very, very similar to atonement. And if you look through the whole Old Testament where this word is used, it's used for cleansing and to purge sin, which is also a roundabout way to say atonement. Okay? It says from within and from without. God is creating his protection to protect his seed from within Noah's family and from without in the world. He is protecting us. He is our atonement. He is going to bring 
our hope and our future through his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that exciting? I mean, it's, it's tragic what happens to the world, but God has a plan. He could have started over with Adam and Eve. He knew where man was going to go, but he doesn't. He changes their age so they will seek him sooner. From within and without, God gets Noah to cover the, over the ark to preserve the, the seed of humanity. God also is saying that he's making atonement for humanity through Noah's descendant. Noah's, God's saying to Noah, I'm starting over with you because I've always leave a remnant for my Redeemer to come through. He can't have corrupt blood. He can't have a corrupt heart. But he offers us redemption through his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us from that heart. Right? Noah, I am your hope and future. We are always looking for to redeem ourselves. Many times we try to redeem ourselves through ourselves, and that's wrong. We see Noah in verse 8. Noah found favor with the Lord. And again in verse 22, Noah did everything exactly as God commanded him. And Noah was righteous, God-fearing man who listened, obeyed, and he obeyed the Lord. He had a dependence on the Lord. He sets an example for that. And we might be tempted to say, well, we found our Savior. We found him. It's Noah. Noah's going to save us. But unfortunately, as we get into it, probably in a couple of weeks, because next week we'll give the salvation message with uh, um, VBS, we have in chapter 9 where Noah gets drunk and curses one of his kids because of one of his mistakes. So he wasn't perfect. We, we know that. And I think that's there, and it's important to know because Noah's not our Savior. Yes, he was a righteous man. Yes, he was far above anybody else that lived on this earth, but he was still corrupt, just like Adam and Eve were, just like Cain and Abel. And our hope and our salvation can only come through Jesus Christ and through God the Father. And God promises us a Savior. That's why he saves us a remnant. And we, we know that Savior to be Jesus Christ, God's Son, perfect and without sin, set apart and holy to redeem us from this present evil age by dying on the cross and then raising to life again. That is where my hope lies. I hope that's where your hope lies as well. A lot of hope there. But there is, right? We're saying twice, I hope, hope, that's where your hope lies, right? If we don't have Jesus Christ, we don't have anything. If we are depending on ourselves to get by, we're not going to get by. We wonder why. I, I've been really pondering this, and this is, again, a shanism. This is where I'm closing with. Anxiety today in our culture. It is rampant. It is ramped up. Well, I have anxiety. I got anxiety. And I think that's great that, that they're willing to admit that they have anxiety because I think that's a good place to start to cure it. But I, th I really think God designed the church to be the answer to that anxiety. His word helps us to get through that. The community of believers coming alongside each other helps us to cope with our anxiety. We're not designed to carry those burdens by ourselves. And when we become our own God, we have to be the strongest one in the room to carry our own burdens. And that it doesn't fly. It doesn't work that way. And so when we learn to cast our anxieties not only on our, on our God, the Father, He is faithful and just to forgive us. He also helps us carry those burdens. But we have a congregation that we can come alongside and admit that I'm suffering this week and I need help. And we have that safety net that we can trust those people that we confess to to take that to the Lord and leave it there between friends. Maybe check in the next, how are we doing next, this week? And I think that's easy to do sometimes with our physical pain because it's physical. But when it comes to our emotional, our spiritual pain, we don't want to do that because we get so vulnerable. And finally on that 
fact, I think it's hard as a pastor to lead that example because if I were to come to you and tell you where I struggle with, which I do a lot because I, I don't really care, it's a good way to lose my job. And you, put a, and you think about that as a, in a pastor uh, that you have a, an image that you have to uphold, that you, you have to be kind of holy. I'm not holy, guys. I will tell you that first. I am not holy. I'm, I'm barely righteous at times, right? But when I can confess to a congregation, when I can confess to the elders of things that I'm, I need to work on, there's strength in that. There's a confidence that I have in that team that I can talk to them about, and I don't have to worry about losing my job, right? I have a brother that's going to come alongside me. And we have brothers and sisters here in this congregation that are willing to do the same thing, and that's what sets White Rose apart from this world. You guys do a very good job of that, and I would pray and continue to do that. It's not okay to sin, but when we do, it's okay to confess. It's got to stay where it's confessed, though, because that's where gossip and slander starts too, right? We want to be a safe congregation, and we are pretty, pretty good in that instance there. Let's close in prayer. You might want to grab your disciple maker's prayers. We'll close with that too. Lord, you're an awesome God. You watch over us. You are our, you care for us, you direct us in your ways, you lift us up when we are weak, you are always there for us. Lord, you are our hope, you are our strength, and we find our rest in you. Lord, don't let us turn to the right or the left. Don't let us find our own way. Don't let us lean on our own understanding. Don't let us depend on our own strength. Remind us, Lord, that you are there, eager, eager to help us find our way. Lord, you are the, the saint of lost things because you found me. Oh, we don't need any other saint. We just need you. Thank you for sending your son to die on the cross. Thank you, Jesus, for raising to life again. Thank you, Spirit, that you convict me of my unrighteousness so I turn back to the Father through his son because of you. Guide and direct us to your ways, Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us a disciple-making way of life in Christ Jesus. As we go through every part of this day, help us to love you and to love the people who cross our path, starting with our family. Don't let us miss the adventures you're sending our way to live and to speak the good news about Jesus Christ today. Draw our hearts closer to you and to specific people you want us to pull close for Jesus-like disciple-making friendships. By your word and spirit, transform each one of us into a follower of Jesus who loves you, who loves people, who makes disciples, who makes more disciples, ad infinitum. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, if you take that prayer and you apply it into your life, I can guarantee it will change your way of thinking how life goes. Um, 